So please turn with me to the book of Hebrews. This is the passage that Dav's going to speak on shortly. And we're in chapter 9. And we're going to start um, in Hebrews chapter 9 from verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves, together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which, is God, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. No, he entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 14 to 28. What a privilege it is to look at God's word together again, isn't it? Now, it's never a bad thing just to remind ourselves what the book of Hebrews is. It's probably not a letter, is it? It doesn't read very much like a letter, especially the beginning, does it? And the experts think that the book of Hebrews is probably a sermon or a selection of sermons on Old Testament passages. 
And this sermon, or the selection of sermons, was sent to a Hebrew church, a church made up of people from a Jewish background, people who had converted from Judaism to Christianity. They'd come to know the living God. Now, these Jewish Christians were finding Christianity hard. They'd gone through conflict, suffering, and persecution. What do we read in Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34? Hebrews 10, verse 32 to 34. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So they didn't have an easy time, did they? These Hebrew Christians, this Hebrew church. And some members of this Hebrew church were seriously considering turning away from Christianity. And we see that in chapter 3, don't we? What do we read in Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 14? See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. And some of the members of this Hebrew church had actually started getting into the habit of not coming to church and we see that in Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. What do we read there? Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So can you see the mess maybe this Hebrew church were in? Some of them were seriously considering turning away from Christ, turning away from Christianity. And some of them had got into the habit of not meeting together with the church. But you might be thinking, well, what's this got to do with us in Binfield in 2020? It's very unlikely that any of us are going to turn away from Christianity to Judaism. And in the last, how long have I been at this church? Two and a half years? Something like that? I think it was September 2017 I started here. So in the last two and a half years, we haven't had anyone from this church who's turned away from Christianity, have we? Anyone who said, I renounce Christ, I'm giving up on Christianity. But, no doubt, one day, we will have people 
will be seriously tempted to turn away from Christianity. I've been a Christian now 25 and a half years. It'll be 26 years in August 2020. And in the 25 and a half years I've been a Christian, I can say that there have been dozens of people that I know who have turned away from Christianity. I've even got family members who've turned away from Christianity. And in our darkest moments, I think it's fair to say, we will all be tempted in our darkest moments to turn away from Christianity. Now, it might be a bit more subtle than turning from Christianity to another religion, like becoming a Muslim or a Jew or a Buddhist or something like that. It'll probably be a bit more subtle than that. I'll share something fairly honest with you. During half term, one evening, I went to the cinema with the children. And I don't know if you ever do this, but you think about stupid things. You see something, and then you dream about it. When I went to the cinema, it was Cineworld, I saw this thing called Unlimited. Have you heard of that? For £18.40 a month, you can see any film, any time, as many times as you like. And I thought, that's really good. £18.40 a month, and I can watch any film, any time, as many times as I want. And I started thinking, do you know, if I was rich and single, I think I'd do that. And then I started, what else would I do if I was rich and single? I'd buy a season ticket, and I'd go to all the football games. I'd go home and away, and then I thought, what am I doing? I'm a Christian. <laughs> what on earth are you thinking about? No, if I was rich and single, I would be well up for the gospel, isn't it? I would spend all my time and my money on the gospel, isn't it? I'd be concerned about the Lord's affairs and how I can please the Lord, not sort of please myself. So what should we do when one of the members of this church are tempted to turn away? And it's going to happen, isn't it? Let's be honest. It might happen... What happens when one of us are tempted to turn away from Christianity? What should we do? Well, what do we read in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25? These two verses. I know we've looked at them already, but what do we read there? But encourage one another. Do not give up meeting together, some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another. So when one of us are tempted to turn away from Christianity, to turn away from Christ, what should we do as a church? We should encourage them. Encourage them with what? Encourage them with Jesus, isn't it? And that seems to be what the apostle is doing. The apostle is encouraging the Hebrew church with Jesus. He's saying Jesus is so much better and what you're thinking of turning to. He's so much better than Judaism without Christ. He's so much better than a season ticket for the football <laughs> or an unlimited cinema pass. 
Jesus is so much better. But the apostle also warns them. There are strong, very strong warnings in the book of Hebrews, isn't there? The apostle is also saying, if you turn away from Christianity, you're turning away from Christ. And if you turn away from Christ, if you die not trusting in Jesus, if you don't endure to the very end, then you've probably never turned to Christ in the first place. You've never really started the race if you don't endure to the very end. So there are warnings in the book of Hebrews, but the Holy Spirit also wants to tell us how amazing Jesus is. That's what we need, isn't it? To be reminded how amazing Jesus is. We need to be encouraged by Jesus. Now, I believe in Hebrews chapter 1 to 7, so the first seven chapters of the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, through the apostle, has been mainly saying who Jesus is. So Hebrews chapter 1 to 7 is about who Jesus is, his person, the person of Christ. Who is Jesus? Well, firstly, Jesus is the Son of God, who is creator and sustainer. He's greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses, and he's greater than Joshua. And we see that from Hebrews chapter 1 through to chapter 4, verse 13. And then secondly, we see that Jesus is the great high priest, the great high priest, in the order of Melchizedek, so he's the eternal great high priest, who is superior to Aaron and all the earthly Levitical high priests. And we see that from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through to chapter 7. And then, from chapter 8, verse 1, the apostle is mainly saying what Jesus has done, the work of Christ, what Jesus has done. So what has Jesus done? Well, firstly, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, a better agreement, better promises. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 8, don't we? What do we read in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6? Hebrews 8 verse 6 says this, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now, do you remember that the new covenant isn't a new way of coming to know God. There's only ever been one way to know God. And how's that? Through faith in the promised one. The promised one who would crush Satan's head. Are you going to hear about that next Sunday morning? Yeah, can't wait. The promised one, the serpent crusher, who is also the seed, isn't it? The offspring who would be the blessing to many nations. And we're going to see that in the book of Genesis, aren't we? the seed of Abraham. So what is the new covenant? The new covenant is Jesus' agreement or promise to give his people changed hearts, to put his spirit in them and move them to follow his decrees and commands. What do we read in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10? 
quote in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And that sounds a lot like Ezekiel 36, verse 26 to 27, doesn't it? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And secondly, Jesus is the priest of a better tabernacle. And we see that in chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. What do we read in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9? Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So Jesus entered the most holy place. Jesus entered heaven once for all by his blood to obtain eternal redemption. Isn't that incredible? Who is Jesus? He's the priest of a better tabernacle. And then thirdly, for this evening's message, Jesus is the better sacrifice. I think that's the main point of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 14 to 28, that Jesus is the better sacrifice. And to make this clear, I think there are three steps in Hebrews 9, verses 14 to 28. What are the three steps? What Jesus has done, verses 14 to 23, what Jesus is doing now, verse 24, through to the first half of verse 28. And then thirdly, what Jesus will do. So Jesus is the better sacrifice. So what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing now, what Jesus will do. And they're kind of three looks, aren't they? What Jesus has done, we're looking back. What Jesus is doing now, we look up, don't we? We sung about that. Upward I look and see him there. And then thirdly, what Jesus will do, where are we looking there? Forward, isn't it? We're looking forward to what Jesus will do. So we look back, we look up, and we look forward. Maybe that could be another title for the message. So firstly, what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? Let's have a look at verses 14 to 23 of Hebrews chapter 9. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? 
If we just maybe stop there for a second, that's such a Trinitarian verse, isn't it? So the blood of Christ, the blood of God the Son, who through the eternal Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, God the Father. So you see the Son, you see the Spirit, and you see the Father cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And I think that's so significant. We've been saved to serve, haven't we? Have you ever heard of that phrase, saved to serve? I think it's maybe quite an old-fashioned thing. When I grew up, people always used to say, yeah, saved to serve, isn't it? Because sometimes you think, well, I've got my ticket to heaven now. I can just relax. I can sin and I can be lazy or whatever. No, we're saved to do something. Saved to serve the living God. He's prepared good works in advance for us to do, isn't he? And we can do it joyfully in the Spirit. But what about verse 15 then? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And then verses 16 to 22. In the case of a will, so this is a great sort of illustration here, isn't it? In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Such a famous verse, isn't it? And then verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So let's come back to the question, what has Jesus done? Well, what are some of the words that are repeated in verses 14 to 23? Did you spot any of the words that were repeated in verses 14 to 23? Blood, yeah, did you hear that one coming up a lot? Blood, died, death, sacrifice. They're perfect ways of describing what Jesus has done. What has Jesus done? He has bled, he has died as a sacrifice for our sins. What has Jesus done? He has bled, he has died as a sacrifice for sins. He had to die, didn't he? That's the big point there. In verses 14 to 23. Secondly then, what is Jesus doing now? What is Jesus doing now? Let's have a look at verses 24 and the first half of verse 28. 
For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. So what is Jesus doing now? Well, where is Jesus, his physical body? His body that bore our sins on the cross, his body that died, his body that was buried and risen from the dead. Where is that body now? Well, it ascended into heaven, didn't it? So Jesus, his physical body, is in the presence of God the Father, in the most holy place. Jesus' physical body right now is in the throne room of God in heaven. In the throne room of God the Father in heaven. But Jesus doesn't have to go into heaven once a year, does he? To offer his blood to make atonement for us. Does he sort of think, oh, it's that time of year again. I have to go back down to earth and be sacrificed again and then enter into heaven again. No, it's been once and for all. Jesus' work of taking the punishment for the sins of the world is finished. Jesus' work is finished because he sat down, isn't he? He sat down at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. It's interesting, in the tabernacle, do you read of any seats there? Or in the temple, any seats? No, there's a table there, isn't there? But no seats. Why? Because the priests would never sit down. Their work was never finished. There was no seats for the priests because their work was never done. So what is Jesus doing now? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus right now is ruling and reigning, isn't he, from heaven. He is praying for us. He's interceding for us. But I think verse 24 is interesting, isn't it? What is Jesus doing now according to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24? At the end of verse 24, can you see that? He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. So we all know that Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven. We all know that Jesus is praying for us in heaven. But Jesus has also appeared for us in heaven. Just being there is very significant. Isn't that sort of deep? Jesus just being there, appearing for us in the Father's presence. What's that about? Well, let's have a quick look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. What do we read there? 1 John Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, 
So this is the Apostle John writing to the church. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. What's an advocate? Someone who goes on your behalf, isn't it? Someone who stands up for you, who speaks for you. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what is Jesus doing right now? When we sin, what does Jesus do? Does he have to say, oh, I better pour out some more blood for David Taylor. You know, he messed up today, didn't he? He didn't love me with all his heart, soul, and mind today. He didn't love his neighbors himself. He didn't forgive very well today. He didn't pray very well. Does Jesus have to do that? Sort of of pour out more blood or something? No. Does Jesus have to beg the Father not to destroy us? Is that what's going on here? Is he saying, Father, no, please don't destroy David Taylor? No, he sort of... When we sin, we need to look up and see him there, don't we? With the eyes of faith. What was the line in Before the Throne of God Above? When Satan tempts me to despair, what should we do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end for all of my sin, isn't it? And Satan tempts me to despair and tells me, isn't it, of the guilt within. Do you find that Satan sometimes does that to you? He says, oh, well, you're finished, aren't you? I'm going to make you really guilty now. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what should we do? I'll look up, isn't it, and say, no, Jesus is there. He's appeared for me at the right hand of the Father. It's almost as if Jesus speaks when he said, no, that David Taylor... I shed my blood for him. My blood is enough. Yeah, he's messed up today, but we love him. Nothing can separate us from his love. We shed, I shed my blood for him. So Jesus is there to remind us. He's appeared in the Father's presence to sort of remind us that our sin has been dealt with. So we don't need to fear. Don't need to fear. And we don't have to do anything either, do we? Because sometimes when we sin, we think, well, I need to do something now. Yeah, when we sin, we do need to confess our sins, but I don't think that's actually doing anything, is it? All we're doing when we're confessing our sin is just admitting, isn't it? I said, yeah, Father, I confess my sins to you, and I thank you that you are faithful and just and will forgive me when I confess my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness because of the precious blood of Christ that was shed for me. So even confessing our sins isn't actually doing anything. It's just admitting, isn't it? Isn't that just so encouraging? Jesus is pleading for us, isn't he? He's appeared for us in the Father's presence, saying, ah, innocent, justified, righteous, isn't it? But what about the third point then? So we've seen what Jesus has done. We've seen what Jesus is doing now. 
He's appearing for us in the Father's presence. He's our advocate right now, isn't he? What about thirdly, what will Jesus do? A very brief point here. Uh, What do we read in the second half of verse 28? What will Jesus do? And he will appear a second time, not to best sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Isn't that amazing? And I think we need to be reminded of this every day, especially every Lord's Day. I'm not sure if I mentioned it this morning, but almost, I should try and get it into sort of every sermon, isn't it? Jesus is coming again, isn't he? Christ is coming again. Um, I heard some very sad news on, on Thursday, and my friend sort of texted me and said, have you heard the news? Are you all right? And um, I think I texted him back sort of Ephesians 6, is it 10? Stand firm in the Lord and in his mighty power, or something like put on the full armor of God, Uh, as you take your stand against the devil's schemes. So I sent him like a verse like that. And then he sent back to me, yeah, very sad news. Uh, Come, Lord Jesus, come, he said. And that's, and I said, yeah, that's the perfect way to respond to sort of horrific news, isn't it? Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come, isn't it? When there is disappointment, heartache, sin, tragedy, disaster, Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come, isn't it? Christ is coming again. And we need to be encouraged by that. So let's remind ourselves, what has Jesus done? He's bled, he's died as a sacrifice for our sins, hasn't he? What is Jesus doing right now? He's appearing for us. As we see in verse 24, he's appeared for us and he's appearing for us now, isn't he? In the Father's presence. He's our advocate before the throne. What will Jesus do? He's coming again to make an end to sin once and for all. And come, Lord Jesus, come. So this week, that should encourage us. We should always remember what Jesus has done, what he's doing now, and what he will do. And that's how we should encourage people who are tempted, seriously tempted, to give up on Christ, to turn away from Christianity, turn away from Christ.